We're going to turn to God's Word for our reading. We're going to be reading Psalm 98. (laughs) Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 98 ein Psalm, singet dem Herrn ein neues Lied, denn er tut Wunder. Er siegt mit seiner Rechten und mit seinem heiligen Arm. Der Herr lässt sein Heil verkünden. Vor den Völkern lässt er sein, seine Gerechtigkeit offenbaren. Er gedenkt an seine Gnade und Wahrheit, dem Hause Israel. Aller Weltenden sehen dem Heil unseres Gottes. Magsiyawit kayo sa Panginoon ng mga pagpuri ng alpa, ng alpa at ng tinig na tugma. Ng mga pakakak at tunog ng korneta, magkaingay kayo na may kagalakan sa harap ng hari ng Panginoon. Riyah durul bahar wa muluha al-maskuna wal-sakinuna fiha. Al-anhar litusafiku bil-ayadi, al-gibal liturannimu ma'an. أمام الرب لأنه جاء ليدين العالم يدين المسكونة بالعدل والشعوب بالاستقامة. This is God's word. Got to be honest, I have no idea whether I should say amen to that. <laughs> But I trust those three, so I'm pretty sure we're all right. Um, and the first one sounded uh, a lot like what I was planning on preaching on tonight, so I think we're in, uh, we're in good hands. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Phil, and I hope to meet you afterwards. And tonight we're breaking our series in 1 Corinthians for World Focus Sunday, as we've been hearing. And we'll be looking at Psalm 98, which is a great uh, call to praise, but also a great encouragement to mission. Let's pray, and then we'll look at God's word together. Our Father God, we thank you that you are not a small God. You are not a God of little England. You're not even a God of Europe. You are a God of all people, of all nations. And one day, all people will praise you. And so we pray tonight that you would stir our hearts with joy for our global God and with love for the people of this world. Amen. Why should you get involved with global missions? Why should you consider being involved in uh, going out to other countries to tell people about Jesus, people who've got their own gods or who are happy with no God? Why should you do it? Well, the Bible gives a a number of different motivations. Uh, Firstly, because Jesus tells us to, and he's God. 
And the way the whole kind of creator creature dynamic works is he tells us to do stuff and we do it. If you haven't worked that out, you'll work it out soon enough. He's God. He gets to tell us what to do. Secondly, the Bible is clear that there is going to be a final judgment and that it really matters that if we live our lives rejecting Jesus, then for eternity we will be cut off from him. But neither of those are the motivations here. In Psalm 98, the motivation is not like Psalm 97 that God will judge the false gods. It is that there is enormous joy. There is abundant joy. There is exuberant joy. There is delight an explosion of happiness on offer for those who come to know the God of the Bible. We said, uh, Daniel said earlier, that there are three real aims that we have on these annual world-focused Sundays. Uh, firstly, we want to lift our eyes from ourselves and what we're doing in London and just see what our great and majestic God is doing in the rest of the world, lest we start thinking that God is London-ish. Actually, we'll, we'll have a very limited view of what God is like if we don't see what he's doing in the rest of the world. Secondly, we want to support our mission, our existing mission partners, the, the faces on that map, better as they seek to proclaim the gospel out in the world. And we want to stir ourselves up to do that, to pray, to write to them, to visit them uh, more than we do. And so do take away those, uh, those booklets. Uh, do pray through them, whether you pray for everybody or you decide just to focus on a couple of the mission partners and really get to know them. Um, do make use of that. Thirdly, we long that some of us who are sitting here this evening would in years to come be faces on that map. And to quote the National Lottery, it could be you. Odds of the National Lottery, they've added a ball, haven't they? It's one in 49 million. Seriously, just give me a quid each week. You're much more likely to get a million at the end of the year. I promise you. And I'm not going to give you a million quid. It is a total pointless thing. But <laughs> the odds that somebody here will go into the global mission field are significantly shorter than that. We've seen many people from this church in years gone by give up careers, give up home comforts, and go. And we would love it if some here would do too. You can all go if you like. I bet you won't. <laughs> I know I can say that safely, but uh, why not try and prove me wrong? <laughs> um, don't worry, Sharon, they won't. <laughs> the, the rotors will still run next week. Um, <laughs> okay, Psalm 98. What's the motivation for, for considering going? What's the motivation for considering going? And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, why is it that Christians do these things? Uh, why can't they just, you know, stick with your own God? Why do you have to pester everybody else about it? Well, you've had 89 Psalms up to this point. Books 1, 2, and 3 of the Psalms have really focused on Israel and on the anointed king, the Messiah, the Christ, the saviour king of Israel, and God's purposes for Israel. But in book 4 of the Psalms, starting with Psalm 90 uh, through to Psalm 106, it's like Tim Peake, the astronaut. We sort of launch off and suddenly we're, we're not looking at Israel and God's king. We're looking at God, the king of the universe. We're seeing God's purposes not just for, for one place but for all peoples. And this little set of Psalms that we're diving into, Psalms 96 to Psalm 100, are all to do with uh, the God who reigns over the world and the joy of people who come to know him. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a tightly um, themed 
bit. Uh, I know nothing about music, but it's it's a different um, riffs on a on a similar theme. It's all it's all about God's reign. So if you look with me, um, you'll see that Psalms 96 and 98 basically start the same way. Sing to the Lord a new song, Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song, Psalm 98. And then they finish in a remarkably similar way as well. 96:13, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. 98:9, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Then Psalms 97 and 99 seem to match. Uh, So both start, uh, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. And 99, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. And they finish, both 97 and 99, both finish praising God for his holiness, that he is not like this world, that he is other. Uh, So look at 97. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Psalm 99. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And then all of those themes come together in Psalm 100 with a, just an explosion of praise for the God who, who reigns today and one day will be seen by all people in all of his glorious splendor as the God and King of everyone who's ever drawn breath. And each of the Psalms has a slightly different focus. So Psalm 97 uh, is really a Psalm of judgment. But the, the focus of Psalm 98, the, the thing you'd have if you, you'd lose if you took Psalm 98 out of the Bible is the joy, the sheer unabashed delight that there is in knowing the God who is the king over all and in being involved in his purposes for the world, in serving him, in knowing him, in trusting him, in going when he sends us. And there's just uh, two points for us. Uh, Sing to the saviour of the world and sing to the king over all people. You've got them on your sheets. You'll know where we're going. Sing to the saviour of the world, firstly. Verses uh, 1 to 3, Psalm 97. Uh, Sorry, Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song. Well, we've done all right this evening on that. Uh, Nothing before the year 2005. Uh, This morning, our first hymn was written in 1851, which is a bit more of an epic fail when you're preaching on this passage. But um, it's slightly awkward standing up. But, uh, But actually, when the Bible says sing a new song, it doesn't mean don't sing old hymns. It's not what it means. It's a phrase that has a particular meaning. Um, If you flick back with me to Psalm 40, you'll see it. There are a number of places we could go. Um, but let's look at Psalm 40 and verses 1 to 3. And you'll see this is, a, this is a, a familiar way that the Bible uses new song. So Psalm 40 verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. In other words, a new song goes with an experience of salvation leads to a new song. When God rescues me, I sing to him anew. Uh, It's not just that psalm. If you uh, you want to chase it up um, later on, Psalm 144, verse 7 to 9, you'll see uh, the same thing. Again, Psalm 149, verses 1 to 4. Isaiah 42, verse 10. Revelation 5, 9 and 14, 3. This is the, the way it works in the Bible. Sing a new song doesn't mean don't sing old songs. You know, some of us who were at church in the 1980s might be glad not to have to sing those songs again. Um, but it's not, it's not having a go at old songs. It's just saying when we experience God rescue us, 
Help us, save us. We want to sing to him afresh. We want to sing to him afresh. So the first time, when you first put your trust in Jesus Christ, when, when the guilt goes, when you realize that he has paid for everything you've ever done, that the shame has been washed away and the guilt has been paid for, you want to sing to God. And when you've been a Christian years, and like all of us do at different points, you fall back into a pattern of sin and you are wandering far away from God and in his kindness, he grabs you by the scruff of the neck and drags you back to safety. You want to sing a new song to God. When you found yourself in physical or, or, or financial danger, real trouble, and you pray in desperation and, and, and God rescues you from, from the mess you're in, you want to sing a new song to him. When you're in a relationship that's gone horribly wrong and, and you can't see a way out and you pray and you pray and you pray or a job that's, that's just, it's a disaster and you can't see a way out and God rescues you. You want to sing a new song. You want to sing to him afresh. You see, what the Bible is saying with sing a new song is that the Christian life is not like you put your trust in Jesus, you're saved and that's it. You know, just, you're, you're basically just marking time till heaven. Now, the Christian life is a, is a life of ongoing daily trust, a life where we take risks for God, a life where we fight sin and we change. And so we, we experience what life is like living in trust of God. And therefore, as we go, there will be times when we will get in real trouble and there will be times when we'll experience a fresh God's goodness in saving us. And with every fresh experience of his saving, we sing a new song of praise. And don't forget that uh, when we sing, there's a, there's a thing that's just a, a human principle that C.S. Lewis pointed out, that when we sing, we don't just express our joy, it actually increases it. There is something about being in a crowd and singing that is better than being on my own. There's something about being able to share, to tell others about good things that makes us even happier than we were before. So why do Christians sing? If you're you're here tonight for the first time wondering, why on earth we sing? Not many of us have got voices that are particularly enjoyable to listen to. But So why do we sing? We sing because, I'll tell you why I sing. I sing because God is enjoyable. And I sing because when I sing, I enjoy him more. And I sing in church because when I sing with you, I enjoy him most of all. That's why we sing a new song. Now the focus of the song here, uh, set out in verse 1 and explained in verses 2 to 3, it's about God's salvation coming to the world. So we, we want to sing to God for all the good things he gives us, and every good thing comes from him, but there's a specific focus here. Look with me, at. Um, let's start getting into the psalm. Sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The greatest thing he's done, the thing that really makes people sing, is salvation. He has worked salvation for us, verse 2. Now, for the Israelites, that meant looking back to the Exodus, which was uh, they were a a nation of slaves in Egypt. Uh, They're under the power of Pharaoh, who has the power of life and death over them. They're in literal chains, and Pharaoh's using that power to kill them. It's an act of genocide, but God smashes Pharaoh's power with the plagues, and then he splits the Red Sea so his people can, can be saved from death, released from slavery, and can be with him in his paradise land. 
That's what they thought of when they thought of the word salvation. Uh, today, if you're a Christian here, we look back to the thing they looked forward to, to the event that the Exodus is really just a shadow, a, a working model of. Because we're not slaves of Pharaoh. The Bible says that all of us, every human, is a slave to sin, which just means there are wrongful desires inside us. All of us know that we just cannot stop. We cannot change, no matter how many resolutions we make, no matter how much willpower we have. We just seem addicted to serving self. And the Bible says God did something. That in his mighty power, God shrunk himself and became a human. In his might, he hung on a cross and died. And as he did so, he broke the power of our slavery to sin and he died the death that we deserve. You see, we all live under the shadow of death and we're unable to reach up to God and and his eternal life. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he brought us to new life and a relationship with God. That is what salvation means for you and me if we trust in Jesus. We often talk about the need to respond to the gospel as Christians. Uh, you'll often hear us talk about uh, the need for people to, for me to look into the claims of Jesus. We run honest questions so that uh, you can bring the questions you've got, discuss them, thrash them out, work it out. We encourage you to think as a church, to work it out, to decide whether to put your trust in Jesus. But that is only half the story. You see, salvation isn't something that, it's not as if uh, God sees humanity, we're in a mess, we're going to die, we're slaves to sin. And so God opens the door to salvation and says, I tell you what, doors open, walk through if you like. Anybody? God steps out into the world and he comes and he reaches down and he grabs us and he drags us to safety and carries us all the way home. Salvation, we're told here, is a work of his right hand and mighty arm. Verse 1, God is a God who does the saving. Actually, the, the biggest deal is not what you think of Jesus. That is not the most important question in the world. The most important question in the world is not what you think of Jesus. It's what he thinks of you. The Bible is a God-centered book, and it is God who does the saving. And so uh, the thing that gets us singing, though, is not so much the depth of his salvation, although he, say, he praises him for that, that God is the one who works salvation rather than just makes it available. It's actually the breadth of salvation that becomes the real focus in this psalm. Verses 2 to 3, the Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. God made promises to the Jewish people. That's what it's talking about when it says his faithfulness to the house of Israel. In fact, uh, the whole Bible is really built on, a, on three promises made in Genesis 12 to, a, to the Jewish man Abraham. And the third of those promises is this. God says in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. And so it is in God's faithfulness to the promise he made to Abraham that the people of all nations experience salvation. That's what he's saying here. And at this point, you realize that the Psalms are not just uh, prayers that we pray to God, and they're not just praise that we sing to God. 
The Psalms are also prophecy. Because if you've read the Old Testament, can you think of a single incident in the Old Testament that matches verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 98? When in the Old Testament do all the nations around the globe see the salvation of God? I can't think of a single incident. But you see, it's not just a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of prophecy. It points to something that isn't yet true when it's written, but will be true in the future. The psalm looks forward to the day when God would send the Jews their Messiah, but that Messiah would die on a cross in Israel for the sins of the whole world. And when Jesus rose again, he sent his Holy Spirit. And what's the first thing that the Holy Spirit does to Jesus' apostles? He enables them to speak 12 different languages that people in Jerusalem, most of them wouldn't have had a clue what they were. Big hint, don't stay in Jerusalem. Go elsewhere. Go tell other people. Different languages for different people. Do you get it? I don't want you staying here. I want the gospel going everywhere. And eventually they get it. Eventually. And they go out to the nations. And this psalm, this psalm talks about that thing that is happening today as the gospel goes out. As salvation is seen not just in one place in Jerusalem, but in all places and for all people. So God's faithfulness for his promises to one people, Israel, was always so that all people would see his salvation, even people in London. Now, I guess if you only know about Christianity from the media um, or from what you see in Britain at the moment... You'd think it sounds a bit odd. This, this psalm is pretty dissonant with what's going on with Christianity because Christianity basically is dying out. And statistics, these are well-known statistics. 1980, on a Sunday, there'll be 5,201,300 Brits in church. That was 11.1% of the population. In 2015, there were 3,000,000 and 81,500 in church on Sunday, only 5% of the population. That is a radical decline. Just within the Church of England, in 2013, uh, the Pew survey showed there were 785,000 people in church on Sunday at a Church of England church, which is exactly half of what the number was in 1968. Oh dear. Doesn't sound much like Psalm 98. But that is only part of the story. You see, even in the UK, while some bits of the church are dying fast, other bits are growing. In fact, the bits that stick to the, the politically incorrect, unacceptable to our culture Bible are growing. And in the rest of the world, the picture is far more exciting. I guess many of us will have heard the statistic that there are now more Christians in China than members of the Communist Party, apparently. It's an extraordinary thought. But what about uh, the Muslim world? I guess the, uh, the issues of Islam are probably higher in most of our awareness than, uh, than Communist China. Well, for the first thousand years after Islam really uh, took hold in the late 600s AD, there was no significant movement to Christ within the Muslim world that we know of. Uh, they, they count a, a movement, a proper movement, as either a thousand people converted, so a thousand converts, a thousand Christians, or a hundred churches. Either of those would do as a, as a metric for an established work. There wasn't a single one in the first thousand years, they don't think. The 1800s, the 19th century, was called the Great Missionary Century. It's when uh, missionaries in their thousands went out from especially um, the Western nations to Africa and Asia and Latin America with the gospel. And saw extraordinary church growth around the world. 
they saw almost nothing in the Muslim world, in the 1040 window, as it's known, across the Middle East and North Africa. In fact, uh, by the end of the 19th century, there were only two established movements across the entire Muslim world, one in Ethiopia and one in Indonesia. But things started to change in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, That holy trinity of uh, the radio, satellite, TV and the internet, uh, bless them all, uh, meant that uh, countries were no longer closed. Suddenly, people could access ideas in a way they never could before. And the truth is, it's very hard to get accurate statistics of what is going on. Um, people uh, argue and debate, and it's you know, obvious why. If you, know, you, if you sort of turn up in uh, downtown uh, Riyadh and say, okay, uh, I'm trying to find out how many Christians there are, could you stick up a hand? You know, for good reasons, they're not going to see many hands go up in the crowd. It's, it's, it's difficult and dangerous to identify yourself as a Christian. So it is very hard to get accurate statistics. Um, What we do know from putting together what we're told from around the world is that there is somewhere between hundreds of thousands and millions. So within this 15 years, something in the order of hundreds of thousands to millions have turned to Christ across the Muslim world. Things are changing. All the mission agencies say things look very, very different. Do you know where the fastest growing church in the world is? I'll give you a clue. It's not in London. (laughs) Um, It's not China. It's not Nigeria. It's Iran. A sober estimate from uh, the most involved missions agency on the ground in Iran is 19.6% per annum church growth. That is extraordinary. 19.6% per annum. God is a God for all the nations. And God's gospel is going out to all the nations. They will all see his salvation. And these verses tell us that as that happens, you want to praise God. Now, we're blessed uh, with some very talented, wonderful musicians here at church. Uh, Last year, they released an album. It's fantastic. We heard a bit of one of the songs um, on the International Cafe plug. Um, That's just a bit of subliminal advertising. You didn't notice it for both the cafe and the album. Anyway, um, if we want their next album to be even better, what should we do? Actually, the answer isn't to punt... Ben for even longer into a recording studio. The answer is to send, well, not, maybe not him, but to send a whole load of us out into the mission field. Because as we as a church are involved in seeing what God is doing around the world, seeing people willing to suffer for the gospel, and seeing uh, great stories of, of God's miraculous work in individuals, As those stories come back to us, as we celebrate what we're part of as a church, I tell you what, we can trust the songwriters to turn those into great songs of praise. But their songs will be much, much better if they're part of a church where we're busy with God's work around the world. And so we're inspired to sing new songs of praise to God. That's why the greatest songs have almost always come on the back of great revivals. It's the way it works. So there we go. If you like the first album and want the second one to be even better, go be a missionary. Uh, And then send Ben an email telling him what's happening. Uh, Simples. Right. Uh, Secondly, verses uh, 4 to 9 of Psalm 98. Uh, Sing to the king over all peoples. So this second half really has uh, four little sections. Uh, Three little sections. Verses 4 to 6, people praise God. 7 to 8, creation praises God. And then verse 9, on why they praise So verses 4 to 6. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. 
Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with the trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Now this is, this is just OTT. This is deliberately wild, exuberant. This isn't so much singing. This is your team wins and you cheer. Scotland fans, just imagine. And you just cheer because you've won and you were there to see it. Sorry, Loz. Um, it's, this is what's going on. It is, it's just spontaneous eruption of praise. The musicians then start to join in. You see the, the instruments are, are called forth in, in verses uh, 5 and verse 6. This is, this is the sort of party that gets um, noise enforcement officers knocking on the door. Uh, the ACDC did a gig last year in New Zealand. People were phoning in from five miles away to complain about the noise. They set off every car alarm in the car park outside with the reverberations. We're not going to try to recreate it by riding the sound desk, okay? The point is not that you've got to sing really loudly in church. The point is that the things this psalm talks about are so good that when they happen, you can't help yourself but shout. Now, there is nothing in the particular instruments. Uh, we don't use all of those instruments here, and that's all right. Uh, actually, there's one significant instrument, and that's the last one that's listed, which is the ram's horn. You see, when God's people gathered at Mount Sinai, there was a loud blast on the ram's horn to signify that God himself had come down to his people. So a little hint of what it is in verse 9 that will cause all people to shout for joy at the end of time. But it's not just uh, people who praise God the Saviour. Look at verses 7 to 9a. And those of you who are uh, more sort of engineering-y backgrounds, don't get over-literal. This is poetry. Don't ask me afterwards how this works. It's poetry. So verse 7, let the sea resound and everything in it. Let the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. What's the point being made? The point is that if in the earlier verses, we the, the people are called to use our voices to praise God. Here, it's not just that we're told to praise God. It's that we're designed to. That is, every atom of this universe that bears the maker's mark is designed to, to twitch, to vibrate to his glory. Uh, Romans eight nineteen to 22 talks about all creation groaning as it's in chains uh, because it's subject to death and decay. But one day when Jesus returns, it'll be released. And the whole creation, not just the people, will in some way shout for joyous praise to God our King. And it all builds to, it all focuses on verse 9, on the return of this king. Because this is what causes the people to shout for joy and, and the rivers and, and mountains to, to clap and sing. It is the coming of God's king. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now this word judge is much richer than uh, just a, the English sense of to give a decision in court. It means to rule, to govern, to give, make good decisions. It's a, it's a kingly word. And our world is crying out for, for the ruler described here. I mean, you listen to some of the, uh, well, just some of the intemperate and occasionally silly language in the presidential debates. Or when Kim Jong-un is sending missiles up into the sky, and you cry out for a, for a ruler who's humble and who's wise and he's come to bring peace and to serve others rather than himself. When Islamic State is ruling over large tracts of Iraq and Syria 
and uh, Libya. When people are oppressed by them, you can bet they're crying out for, for a king who is able to bring justice, who is able to destroy the powers of evil and to bring peace. When politicians hear, oh, I don't want to be too cynical, but you, you turn on the news and it does sometimes feel like they're very adept at playing the Westminster game and point scoring, but they're as clueless as the rest of us, it sometimes seems, when it, you know, you're facing a refugee crisis and mass problems of integration with immigration. And you just long for somebody who's wise enough to, to know how to, to respond in a compassionate and yet wise way to these issues. And the truth is, one day, one such will come. A king who has the power to bring an end to evil and suffering, and yet who is humble enough that he comes in peace and forgiveness and love. The king who is willing to die on a cross to save the life of rebels is the king that you and I need in this world. That Jesus will reign over the world is not in doubt. He rose again from the dead and when a guy rises from the dead and says, I'm coming back, you can take his word on pretty much anything if he's able to conquer death. That he's coming back is not in doubt. That he'll rule for all eternity is not in doubt. The question is, will I, will you, will others meet him as our glorious saviour or as the conquering judge? Will we meet him as, well, the God we turn to and trusted in, and ignored most of the time, or will we meet him as the one who led the mission that we gave our life to, that we were involved in and gave ourselves to? See, actually, the aim of world's mission is very, very simple. It's to prepare people for the coming of their king. That's what we're about, to prepare people for the coming of their king. Look, how do we get involved with world mission if we want to be on board? I guess there are three ways that are pretty obvious. You give, give money to the work of um, world missions. As a church, we, we give around 12 and a half, a bit more than that percent of our budget each year. We'd love to give more. The more we give, the more we can uh, funnel to missions. Pray. Uh, commit to praying. Why not commit to pray for one or two of the missionaries in that, uh, in that booklet? Make them people you take a particular interest in. Get in touch with them. Pray for them regularly, weekly. You know, there's so much joy for us when we're involved with people, when we hear good news that is good news we've been praying for. Don't rob yourself of joy. Get involved in praying. And thirdly, we could go. We could give, we could pray, or we could go. We're all called by the gospel to go. Uh, some of us to cross the corridor or to cross the trading floor or the lecture hall or the street to take the gospel to those who we work with and live with. But some of us will want to cross cultures and oceans and take the gospel to people far away. Perhaps in particular, it would be wonderful if we could raise up from here people who would go to some of the unreached people. There are still thousands of people groups who have no access at all to the gospel. And it would be wonderful if we could change that. And actually, as we said um, we said earlier there's an opportunity for any of us here to get involved in uh, being missionaries uh, to people who come from a place where you'll get locked up if you tell them about Jesus. And you can do it without any danger of going to prison, without having to learn any language, without having to get any jabs, and without having to go anywhere. Just come here on a Friday night. It's fantastic. It was great hearing uh, somebody um, this weekend who's been involved this term in International Cafe saying, you know, gosh, it is actually quite a 
thing to give up your Friday night, but you know what? I was almost in tears with joy, they told me, as they came away on Friday night after the conversations they'd had. You can give, you can pray, and you can go. But I guess for most of us, the issue isn't uh, what do I do, it's why should I do it? Actually, it's a motivation issue in my heart that stops me getting on board with missions rather than an understanding of what I might do. So why get involved with world missions? Oh, there's loads of reasons, but because of joy. Because of the joy of the people you go to, for their eternal joy, that they will meet God, not as judge, but as saviour for all eternity. Because the unending, eternal, exuberant joy for us as we get to be part of God's missionary work in the world. I was reading a, a number of stories this, uh, this week from some books of uh, people who've been working, especially in the, in the Middle East. Um, uh, especially on the back of a guy, an Egyptian called uh, Father Zachariah, who's a truth talk satellite broadcast have so enraged um, some of the, uh, the Islamist governments that there's a $60 million bounty on his head. Um, but he, uh, but his, his broadcasts keep going out and people keep um, contacting the show to want to know more about Jesus. I read about an old, a chain-smoking old man called Nazar who uh, at the end of his life said, look, most of my life was behind me now. So once I realised Jesus was Lord, I asked myself, why are you waiting? What have you got to lose? So I just began talking to people about him. My relatives, my friends, I urged them to question what they'd always been taught. And within a few years, I'd led 21 of them to faith in Jesus. My favourite was, was this story from a girl called Nadia in Iran who um, her family was in a right mess and a cousin, I think, gave her a New Testament. And she went home. She was a quite committed Muslim, so she went home with a New Testament and her Quran. And when I got home that night, she writes, I took out my Quran and prayed, God, if this is your word, show yourself to me through this book. But instead, something just drew me to the New Testament. And as I read it, I felt my heart open like an old door. And I understood every verse with all my being. I set the Quran aside Inside, I felt very warm and very thirsty. It was like drinking cool water, and I wanted to drink it all. From that time on, Jesus' work started inside me. It was a strange happiness like nothing I'd ever known. I was like the Samaritan woman in John 4, just telling everybody about Jesus. Within a week, my husband and three children, they came to faith in Christ too. But as I said, it's not just their joy. In heaven, you and I will praise God forever. But we won't just praise him for what he's done in our lives. We'll spend eternity praising for what he has done in the lives of other people too. And that praise will be so much richer if we've been involved in it. You know, it's a, you can go to a great sporting event like Murrayfield yesterday. It's great to hear about England winning if you're an England fan. But if you've been there, gosh, it's so much better. And if you've been on the pitch playing and you win, oh, that's the sweetest of all. And that is why it's no lie in Psalm 98 when it says it is for joy that you should get involved in missions. I don't think there'll be any greater joy than those in heaven who've given their life to take the gospel out to the nations and they can see what God has done through their sacrifice. But there'll be great joy for those of us who get involved prayerfully, financially, for those of us who encourage missionaries, for those of us who tell others about Jesus. Don't rob yourself the joy. Don't rob others the joy. Get involved. Get involved and see if you're not singing a new song to God. Let's pray. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Father, we praise you that Jesus who saved us is coming to rule us. And we pray that you would help us to to see how joyful that day will be and to commit ourselves to ensuring that many more people will meet him as their saviour. Father, we pray that you would stir us to be committed to and involved in the work of missions for your glory and for our joy. Amen.